great pleasure to uh, introduce and welcome Hugh Perry. Uh, he's uh, very familiar with Oxford, having spent many years from being an undergraduate, then doing his uh, DPhil, and then staying on as a, a university lecturer, a research fellow. Uh, but then he decided to, uh, to leave Oxford and went to Southampton as the, uh, the professor of um, experimental neuropathology. Um, Hugh and I have known each other for years, because in fact, he was just reminded me, he was very involved in vision uh, after probably the 80s, long, long time ago. Um, and uh, we met up then. Uh, but then we met very re relatively recently because Hugh is now the, uh, the board chair of the Neurosciences and Mental Health Board of the Medical Research Council. And he took over from me when I admitted from that place. What, 2000 and uh, whatever. Oh. Yeah. Um, so Hugh's had an incredibly busy time, and of course is a major player in UK neuroscience, uh, and all that the MRC does uh, for that. Um, he has always, since he sort of left vision, um, been interested in the role of inflammation in the brain, uh, and he was really ahead of the head of the pack in that regard, and has been interested, first of all, in multiple sclerosis, but then even more recently in the role of inflammation in chronic neurodegeneration. And that's what he's going to talk to us about today, so a warm welcome. Thanks very much, Chris. Well, it's a pleasure being here, and I should say, when Chris said, oh yes, do be chair of the MRC, it's a really easy job, won't take much time. I'm quite true, but and you didn't ever say that. So it was fun with you, and it's been fun. So um, I'm going to tell you a story that has evolved over about the last uh, five to ten years or so uh, about the role of microbial biology in chronic neurodegenerative disease. And um, as Chris mentioned, uh, we've worked on multiple sclerosis, uh, acute brain injury, uh, various other things today. Uh, I'm going to stick to the topic of, of chronic neurodegenerative disease, although some of the things that I would say um, we hope uh, have some consequence for, for other disease states as well. So because not everybody in the room uh, may know or think about uh, microglia as much as we do, uh, let me just use a couple of slides to introduce you to sort of state of the art of microglia biology. So the microglia enter the brain uh, in the embryo, they're derived from the yolk sac, and uh, we now know they're long-lived cells, uh, they're locally maintained, they're not replaced by cells from the, from the blood. And uh, although in, in histological sections they look as if they're a static population of cells, uh, in vivo imaging shows that they move their processes all the time, they palpate the world around them. And as you can see here in these images, uh, each cell seems to have its own territory, so it's looking after its own little bit of brain. And uh, there's a growing list of functions now attributed to these cells uh, in both homeostasis and in pathology, and I will touch on both of these uh, in the course of the talk. And pathology we refer to these cells as activated microglia. They've changed their phenotype, they've changed their morphology, and we refer to them as activated. And that's a, a very complicated uh, term when one digs around in the details. In addition to the microglia, there's another population of macrophages, or other populations of macrophages, uh, of which most notable for today are these, the perivascular macrophages. And these are the macrophages that lie adjacent to the endothelial cells, they don't have the same morphology as microglia, and they're critically involved, involved in immune-to-brain communication, and we'll see why that's important in a while. Now, we've known uh, ever since I started working on microglia in the 1980s that they're a bit different uh, from other tissue macrophages, 
And this is beautifully illustrated in these two recent publications, where microglia have been isolated from the brains of either animals or humans, and then compared by their transcriptome uh, with other tissue macrophages. And uh, this, uh, graph, this uh, figure up here shows you the genes expressed in microglia are not expressed in macrophages, the molecules expressed in macrophages are not expressed in microglia. And bit by bit, there is evolving, uh, like, a number of genes that are the microglia signature, the signature of microglia in a homeostatic state. And like other tissue macrophages, they have their own cluster of genes. But one of the most interesting things about microglia is they express maybe several hundred fewer genes uh, than many other tissue macrophages. So one of the interesting puzzles over the years has been what is it about the central nervous system microenvironment and these cells get in the brain that keeps them under control, keeps them in some way uh, suppressed. And uh, we'll return to what this family molecules might be uh, in a little while. So they're unusual macrophages, they're kept under tight control, they play a role in both homeostasis and pathology. So in the context of Alzheimer's disease, uh, we know, of course, that the two hallmarks of the pathology are the accumulation of amyloid uh, in the extracellular space and uh, the accumulation of neurofibrillary tangles uh, within the neurons themselves. And uh, since about the, the late 1980s, there's been interest in the idea that inflammation may also be involved in the disease. And uh, this little figure here shows that this is not a new idea the idea that non-neuronal cells might be involved in the disease is now about 100 years old. Big issue is, is it simply a consequence of pathology? Do microglia become morphologically activated as a consequence of the disease, or do they contribute to the disease? And this has been a kind of backwards and forwards discussion uh, for now some 20 years or so. But uh, what has become clear now from the uh, GWAS studies, the genome-wide association studies, is that cells of the innate immune cells, I should say molecules of the innate immune system, are involved in this disease. So the blue globs are genes that are representing uh, proteins that are expressed on the surface of myeloid cells. And uh, probably the most uh, impactful at the moment is TREM2, but there are a host of others, uh, maybe about a dozen genes in all. So the interesting thing about these molecules expressed on the surface of, of uh, macrophages is what do they do? So one idea, of course, is if they're involved in Alzheimer's disease, they must be involved uh, in munching up amyloid. Uh, of course, it's very unlikely uh, that these molecules evolved to munch up amyloid, since most animals and people never live long enough to accumulate amyloid. Uh, their role seems to be much more generic. So all of these molecules that you see listed here have one thing in common, and the commonality is that they inhibit the activation of myeloid cells, both microglia and other tissue macrophages. In the context of the nervous system, the ligands are expressed on the surface of neurons and uh, to some extent also on astrocytes. So CD200 expressed on neurons binds to its receptor, the receptor cytoplasmic tail has an inhibitory motif, and it inhibits the activation of myeloid cells. This is true as we work our way through each of these molecules in turn. 
So a simple consequence of this observation is if neurons die and these ligands are now lost, this will lead to a loss of inhibition of um, the microbial cell. The microbial cell can now become activated. So what we would like to know is how might these cells contribute to disease process, a chronic neurodegenerative disease. Well, when we started uh, with this uh, idea, now some 10 plus years ago, I said, um, that the models that existed for studying uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, were uh, not as uh, complex or as diverse as they are now. But uh, what we thought was important at the time was not the presence just of the amyloid or the tau, but the fact that it was a chronic neurodegenerative disease. So we decided that we would work on prion disease because it has commonality with many other neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, not the least of which is it's a fatal progressive neurodegenerative disease. It involves the accumulation of misfolded protein, has a predictable spread of pathology, now referred to as prion-like spread, and uh, there was good inform information uh, that neuroinflammation is activated in microglia uh, might be involved. And we use all of these different techniques, and I'm not going to dwell on any of them. Happy to answer questions about it later. So what we wanted to know was whether uh, these microglia might contribute to disease. And uh, to get to that point, we thought it would be important uh, to address uh, a number of questions. First of which is, what activates them? Second, what is their phenotype? What does activated actually mean? This change in morphology, uh, change in number, what does this mean? Where do they come from? Are they recruited from the blood, or is it all from local proliferation? And then we'll try and work out how all this might contribute to disease. So first of all, what activates them? Is it the misfolded protein? And uh, of course, we now know that in the context of, of <coughs> Alzheimer's disease and also other protein misfolding diseases, the tauopathies, that these diseases spread through the brain in a predictable way. So to take uh, this uh, figure here, uh, this is where the first pathology appears in, in one of the tauopathies. It appears in the brainstem. It then appears to spread along anatomical pathways. In some way, uh, the disease is cascading through the brain. And as it cascades through the brain, this is associated with the activation of microglia. The simple answer is, it's the misfolded protein that's activating the microglia. Uh, we can show this in vitro by throwing misfolded protein uh, onto the microglia. Is this true uh, in our disease model? So these are studies done in a, in a particular uh, model of prion disease. Uh, again, details are not uh, important, it's a generic issue. And in prion diseases, there are regions where there is pathology and regions where there is no pathology. And I'll refer to this as affected regions and unaffected regions. In affected regions, there's neurodegeneration, activation of the glial populations, unaffected regions, no neuronal loss, no glial activation. So what we'd like to do is to be able to detect the very first uh, components of the misfolded protein. And these very first components, the, the, the tiny little uh, first events in misfolding, are referred to as seeds. And uh, James Alibi, who's a graduate student uh, working at the Rosalind Institute, where I work some of the time, uh, has worked out this method based on uh, work done by Brian Corby, Byron Corby and his colleagues. 
So what you do is you take a bit of tissue, you put it into a tube with um, a recombinant PRP, and you shake it around under the right conditions. And then you add fire-flavoring tea to your, um, to your tube, and over time, a fire-flavoring positive signal, which is a signal for the presence of amyloid, uh, then appears uh, in your tube. So it tells you that there is indeed seeding material present, and it can give rise to a signal. So we do this uh, with uh, normal brains, and of course, not surprisingly, there's no misfolded protein and no fire-flavoring signal. But when we do this with both unaffected regions of brain, micro-dissected out, and affected regions of brain, we find that surprisingly, there is the same signal. This is an end-stage disease. So what we need to do is go earlier in the disease process, and surprisingly, again, we find in both affected regions and unaffected regions that this misfolded protein appears to be all over the brain. It's not spreading in a predictable way through the brain. It's actually all over the brain, uh, well before uh, clinical disease appears, and does not appear to be related uh, to the activation of the microglia. I think it's an interesting issue uh, for uh, the, the, the other uh, misfolding diseases, uh, and again, how these proteins spread in the brain uh, is an interesting problem. So if it's not the misfolded protein that's activating the microglia, maybe it's the very first components of pathology. And some of you will know uh, that as we've studied these diseases over the years, there's become interest in the idea that the synapse is really the first uh, component of the degeneration. Maybe we should refer to them as synaptopathies, because this idea that the synapse dies and then it, the, the whole axonal branch dies back towards the cell body. So we look in the brains of our animals with prion disease. In fact, the very first events that we see are indeed diagsynapses. But again, uh, somewhat of a surprise, uh, we don't see that this dying synapse is being engulfed by a microglial cell. It's actually being engulfed by uh, a dendritic spine. And these dendritic spines envelop uh, these dying synapses and appear, if anything, uh, to exclude uh, any other processes. So maybe when this synapse is dying, the axon is dying as well. So uh, Hussein Al-Malki, a, a graduate student from Saudi Arabia, he uh, decided he would label these CA3 neurons and label their axons as they course uh, across the hippocampus. And what you can see here is that the synapses of these CA3 axons in normal healthy brains look like beads on string. And if the axon was dying back from the end, then the spacing should remain the same, and we would expect to see the axons slowly fragmenting. In fact, what we see, again, uh, hard to see, understand precisely how the biology works, but bit by bit, the spacing between the synapses increases over time. So the beads on a string are dying, but the bit of the string uh, is of itself uh, remaining intact and is able to transport this tracer along uh, the axon. And uh, what Hussein has shown is the spacing between the axon, between the synapses increases with time, and that the remaining synapses get bigger and bigger as a kind of compensatory uh, mechanism. So precisely how the microglia become activated, which bit of the degeneration process is activating these cells, uh, seems to be rather 
different in vivo from what has been described uh, in vitro. Uh, but it could be that the synapses are shedding exosomes, these small particles uh, of membrane uh, that carry a signature that the cell is degenerating. So the microglia are activated. We're not quite sure how this comes about. Uh, but we do know something about their phenotype. And uh, what we've done is using uh, PCR methods, immunocytochemistry uh, methods, and so forth, uh, have investigated this. And we find that, in fact, they are neither pro- or anti-inflammatory. They're a kind of hybrid, as it turns out, uh, in many disease conditions. Uh, you might argue that it's dominated by, if anything, an anti-inflammatory profile. The most robust cytokine is uh, TGF-beta-1, an anti-inflammatory cytokine. Uh, prostaglandin E2, which also has an anti-inflammatory component. And then these other molecules, CCL2, which is a chemokine, and CSF1 and IL-34 uh, that I'll introduce you to in a little while. Well, this hybrid uh, profile doesn't lead you to immediately conclude either way that this is good or bad for the nervous system. And since we don't know whether it was contributing to the disease or not, and we had no evidence that it was, uh, for about 10 years, I refer to this as a benign inflammatory response. And it's always nice to, to do something like this, because if you turn out to be wrong, uh, then you can admit that you get things wrong as well. So uh, we've referred to it as a benign anti-inflammatory response. We've looked into microglia proliferation, and a number of years ago, when we were here in Oxford, Linda Lawson showed that the microglia do indeed proliferate, and it seemed to be a very low rate of proliferation. These are difficult studies with combination of triliated thymidine, uh, immunocytochemistry, and hunting through endless sections for very small numbers of cells. Using bromidioxyuridine and this mouse, the mac green mouse, where all of the microglia are labeled green, as you saw in the earlier slides, uh, we can now see that there are rather more cells uh, that are labeled with BRDU. And about one in 200 of the microglia are about to divide uh, at any moment in time, which is a not insignificant uh, rate of turnover. So locally, uh, they're being maintained and turning over fairly rapidly. So what happens in disease? And Diego Gomez, postdoc, me now, uh, or was a postdoc, now a lecturer in his own right, PI in his own right, uh, undertook this study, and he labeled animals with prion disease with this molecule, bromidioxyuridine, to look for proliferation. And what you see here is all of these red cells are also green cells. They're all proliferating microglia. And associated with this proliferation, is an increase in colony-stimulating factor 1, IL-34, and colony-stimulating factor 1 message, CSFR1, uh, the receptor for these two ligands. But uh, all of this is me me measures of message, mRNA. Uh, so we need to know what the proteins do. So what Diego then did was to inject into the brain of animals with prion disease either CSF1 or IL-34 and showed that both of these molecules, but in particular IL-34, will drive microglia proliferation. So as the disease evolves, the microglia are proliferating, and the proliferation is driven through the CSF1 receptor uh, by these two ligands. So we've set about trying to answer what activates them. Not quite sure. 
could be early stages of, of synaptic degeneration. We know they have this anti-inflammatory phenotype. Uh, we know that most, if not all of them, this increase that you see here comes from local proliferation rather than recruitment. And now we'd like to know how do they contribute to disease. But in the course of these studies, there were other people uh, publishing data on Alzheimer's disease, in particular uh, studies from, from post-mortem tissue of humans. And the phenotype that they described in their uh, microglia uh, was that they had a pro-inflammatory phenotype. So what might be different between the mice with this rather anti-inflammatory phenotype and uh, what people have described in humans? Now, if you're over 50, you should probably look away now because one of the things that happens as you age is you move into what I refer to here as the blue zone. And the blue zone is where the comorbidities in other bits of your body uh, begin to dominate your life. So this is a study from some uh, one and three quarter million people from Scotland. I assume it's not peculiar just to Scotland. And uh, the, the comorbidities that have been registered in these medical records uh, include uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, atherosclerosis, uh, and a, a number of other disorders as well. And what is clear is that as you age, uh, you accumulate these comorbidities. And many of these comorbidities will give rise to systemic inflammation. So this was a pretty simple-minded idea. Maybe systemic inflammation is important in the interpretation of what we see in uh, our animals versus the people. So why might this be the case? Why might we think that systemic inflammation is important? Well, you may never have thought about it, but you've certainly experienced it, that when you get an infection, uh, it communicates with your brain. That's why you feel ill. And it's called being ill or sickness because that's how you feel. But how does it work? And uh, Robert Dancer and his colleagues have demonstrated in a whole plethora of really interesting studies that there are multiple routes of signaling into the brain. Along the vagus nerve is one route. Across the, the regions of the brain where there's no blood-brain barrier, the circumventricular organs, but probably the, the most uh, abundant pathway, if you like, is this pathway here. So cytokines generated systemically and other inflammatory mediators circulate in the blood and bind to receptors on the surface of the endothelial cells. The endothelial cells express toll receptors, cyclone receptors, and so forth. This activates the endothelial cells, and the endothelial cells then in turn communicate with these, the perivascular macrophages. The perivascular macrophages then being shown by ourselves and others to then make cytokines and other inflammatory mediators, which then in turn communicate with the microglia. So the communication is blood, endothelial cell, perivascular cell, microglia. This does not require the blood-brain barrier to be broken. It happens to you all the time. This is part of the homeostatic role of microglia. They play this critical role in signaling from the periphery to the brain. To demonstrate that this happens in vivo, um, this is a study done in non-human primate where they've taken uh, the animal, put it in a pet machine, and uh, used this molecule, PBR28, to label the TSPO, which is expressed on microglia. So this is a transporter expressed in the mitochondria, predominantly, I should say, not exclusively, in microglia. 
What you see here within one hour of giving a dose of, of endotoxins systemically, some of the microglia are activated. Within four hours, the microglia throughout the brain are now activated. So systemic inflammation does indeed communicate with the brain, and that's why you feel ill. <coughs> so it doesn't take a, a, a great stroke of insight to then ask, well, if in your normal healthy brain, uh, hopefully all of you have normal healthy brains, uh, the microglia look like this. They're small in number. They're kept under tight control by the brain microenvironment. What would happen in a diseased brain where there are now five to ten times as many microglia? The microglia are partially activated, or as we refer to them, primed by the ongoing neurodegeneration. What would now happen if you had a systemic inflammatory response? Before we address that question, we also uh, discovered along the way, or rather Diego did, that these perivascular macrophages in the animals with prion disease also increase in number, not just the microglia population, but also the perivascular uh, macrophage population. So now imagine here's an end of, uh, uh, a blood vessel. The cell arrives in the blood. It communicates with the endothelial cells and communicates with the perivascular cells, which are now double the signal compared with a normal healthy animal. And then that, in turn, that signal is yet further amplified uh, by these microglial cells here that are increased in number and now primed, or at least partially activated. And what happens, uh, we've now published this uh, in some detail and other studies as well, uh, that these bacterial or viral mimetics, LPS or poly-IC, uh, gives rise to both acute and chronic consequences. So the acute consequences of these systemic challenges are sickness behavior. You do it in an animal with a, a neurodegenerative disease, there is exaggerated sickness behavior. The fever is greater, the fever lasts longer, the reduced activity lasts longer, and in the brains of these animals, there is now increased cytokine synthesis of pro-inflammatory cytokines. The microglia are now switched to this pro-inflammatory phenotype. There are also chronic consequences. We use a battery of behavioral tests to measure how the disease progresses. Uh, and in these studies, we've shown that animals challenged with these mimetics, there's an earlier onset of cognitive decline and an earlier onset of motor impairment. So systemic disease can, uh, uh, in essence, accelerate the disease progression. So how does this work? How does this priming work? So macrophage priming has been studied in vitro for decades. And nearly all of it is done with gamma interferon. But because there's no gamma interferon, we, we've looked at other molecules instead. Uh, no gamma in the brains of these animals. So you take some macrophages and you put them in culture and then expose them to this molecule I introduced you to before, CSF1 or MCSF. The macrophages synthesize a little bit of TNA. If you expose a macrophage in culture to LPS or poly-IC, they also make a little bit of TNA. But if you expose them first to CSF1, which is abundant in the brains of animals with prion disease, and then challenge with this secondary stimulus, they now make a bucketful of TNF. So the CSF1 primes the microglia, the second stimulus acts as a trigger. 
And the priming involves an increase in the synthesis of these receptors on the cell, increase in molecules involved in the signaling pathways in the cytoplasm, and not surprisingly, then an increase in uh, the message uh, from uh, the DNA uh, of these cells. So priming sets the stage, the trigger uh, then produces these activated, exaggerated signals. And CSF1 and IL-34 uh, act through this CSF1 receptor. Uh, the CCL2 uh, has similar effects, but I'm not going to go into it uh, today. In addition to generating more cytokines, uh, this uh, priming first by CSF1 and then activation by LPS. And we do this in our animals with prion disease. Not only do we get more cytokines out of the, the microglia, but their receptor repertoire changes dramatically. And uh, as you can see in the, this microglia here, the FC receptors, the receptors for antibody, are increased literally hundreds of fold in the animals uh, with, the two, with both the disease and the LPS challenge uh, compared to animals uh, with either alone. So this idea of priming and then subsequent secondary challenge uh, helping to drive the disease, what we'd like to do is see how the microglia really contribute to the disease. So we had this idea that if the, the microglia are contributing to the disease because there's twice as many here, or five times as many here as there are there, what we would do is first turn down the number of microglia, reduce the numbers of microglia, and then when we challenge them with LPS, it would have much less effect. And that seemed like a sensible strategy, a, a sensible way to attack this. And of course, what we need to turn down the numbers of microglia is we know that it's this signaling through the CSF1 receptor that is driving the proliferation. So if we turn down the number, then challenge with LPS, uh, we would see how they uh, contribute to the disease process. So we know there are lots of different ways we could block this pathway. We could use antibodies to CSF1, antibodies to IL-34, antibodies to the receptor, but actually there are good tool compounds from industry, uh, kinase inhibitors, that can inhibit this kinase. And what Diego did was to feed some of our animals with prion disease uh, this tool compound, GW2580, which is an inhibitor of this receptor, CSFR1. And what we wanted to do was to turn down the numbers of microglia. And indeed, what we find when we feed these animals for just one month uh, with this uh, drug from the onset of the first symptoms, we feed them for a month, it reduces the number of microglia by about half, reduces proliferation, reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokine profile, and increases the anti-inflammatory cytokine profile. So we reduce the number of cells, and uh, seem to keep these guys under control. So we were all ready to do the LPS challenges when, to our surprise, and particularly my surprise, uh, there were other things to observe. First thing to observe was in the animals with half the numbers of microglia was that the cell death was uh, radically reduced. In the behavioral assays, the onset of the behavioral deficits was uh, delayed and the animals lived a few weeks longer. Now this few weeks longer doesn't look very impressive here, but when I tell you there is no other compound in the whole literature that delays uh, prion disease when given therapeutically rather than prophylactically, um, 
then maybe this was quite a nice surprise. So this apparently benign anti-inflammatory phenotype is in some way already playing a role in the disease. So we don't even have to do the LPS challenge. Uh, we, we are doing it, as you might imagine. Uh, but this benign uh, uh, component appears to be having a role in its own right. We know, too, that this is also the case uh, in a model of, of um, uh, motor neuron disease, the G93A sub one mice, but I'm not going to dwell on that. So this is a pretty mouse-centric point of view, uh, or very interesting, uh, jolly nice. We, we have this idea that systemic disease might be in some way helping uh, to drive disease uh, in people with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, so a few years ago now, when these first, this idea first emerged, um, I got on the telephone to uh, a guy called Clive Holmes, who's a clinician uh, in Southampton, works at the Morgreen uh, Memory Assessment Center. And I asked Clive whether this had any resonance with the sorts of things that he uh, studied in his clinic. And he said, of course, every old age psychiatrist knows that when their patients with Alzheimer's disease get an infection, their symptoms get worse, and then when the infection goes away, they get better. But do they really get better? And at the time that I spoke to him on the phone, there was no evidence either way as to whether they got completely better or were left with a residual deficit. So could it be that each infection would give rise to a residual deficit? So we set up this study in, in which we wanted to ask how systemic inflammation might impact on disease progression in people with Alzheimer's disease. And um, when I say we set up, this is Clive and his nursing team and me sort of standing in the background cheering a lot. So we did a number of different measures. I'm not going to tell you about all of them. Uh, and we looked at uh, how uh, cognition using ADAS-COG uh, changed over a period of six months. In the six-month period, uh, the carers uh, or nursing staff kept a careful record of whether these people had an infectious event or a systemic inflammatory event caused by uh, either surgery, infections, falls, and so on. In addition, we took blood samples at regular intervals. We could only do it uh, every two months. Uh, and there are interesting uh, uh, technical and, and ethical problems about how to measure cytokines in elderly people over long periods of time, and there's clearly interesting things to do there. The first thing we found was that there were people who had raised levels of TNF for all of the six months, and there were people who did not. And uh, this high TNF uh, actually is not high, it, it's more than uh, 2.5 picograms per mil, so it's, it's just raised as opposed to high. Most people in the room would have undetectable levels uh, of TNF. In addition, among these two groups, the high and low groups, uh, there were people who had infections and, and those who did not. And as is abundantly clear, this group here that had both systemic inflammation, presumably arising from some occult disease that, that we were not in a position to diagnose, uh, and had infections, uh, the ADAS-COG score changed by four points over the six-month period. Whereas those who had neither systemic inflammation or infections, uh, they remained pretty stable all over the six-month period. On the MPI, looking at depression, apathy, uh, and so forth, uh, these people with the high levels of TNF, these symptoms were also more frequent in those individuals. 
uh, than in these individuals here. So there is clearly an association between systemic inflammation and uh, disease symptoms uh, over this sort of period. Problem is how to address uh, this association, how to unpick the association. And uh, more recently, I've just done a small study to look at the role of a tanacept in Alzheimer's disease. So a tanacept is widely used, as many people know, uh, for the treatment uh, of rheumatoid arthritis. It's an inhibitor of TNF, uh, and it's made up of a chimeric molecule of the TNF receptor, the type 2 receptor, fused to uh, human IgG. And this is a molecule that has uh, a molecular weight of about 150 kilodaltons. So there have been a few studies where people have given a tanacept to people with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and it has been claimed that some of these people have shown a sort of Lazarus-like uh, um, <coughs> response to, to the injection uh, into their neck for some reason or other. And um, this was important, therefore, that we did a safety study with a small number of people who were given a tanacept, a similar number were given placebo, and then we looked for side effects in these 75-year-old uh, or so patients. And uh, the first thing is that there were no uh, overt side effects. It appears to be uh, relatively safe to use in people in this age, uh, but none of these people suddenly leapt out of their beds or chairs or whatever. So uh, that's uh, one part of the story. But the interesting thing is this is a small study, and it's not a trial, it's called a safety trial, but the reality is it's an experiment. And it's an experiment in people to see whether a tanacept might have any impact on Alzheimer's disease. Did it make it worse? Did it have no effect? Or did it point in the direction that this might be an interesting way to go? So the people who are given a tanacept, these are the, the mode spots here, uh, appear to be relatively stabilized relative to the placebo group, the black spots. And the MMSE, as you know, uh, measure of cognition, other measure of cognition, activities of daily life, uh, the neuropsychiatric inventory, uh, the Cornell Depression score, uh, and another clinical score. And uh, I would suggest to you, uh, these are not all significant, a uh, couple of them are significant, that this is simply evidence that the arrow points in the direction that systemic inflammation is uh, helping to drive the disease process, and that maybe even treatment that acts systemically uh, may have uh, some value uh, in this disease process. So should we be surprised? Should we be surprised that systemic inflammation has anything to do with Alzheimer's disease? And of course, uh, if we look around in the literature and we look at the epidemiology, uh, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, we know that the single biggest risk factor uh, for old age, for, for, for Alzheimer's disease, is old age. And uh, that leads to two uh, immediate observations. The first is, if old age is the single biggest risk factor, then talking about cures for Alzheimer's disease is probably a pretty silly thing to do, since curing old age uh, even managed to defeat uh, the Greek gods. So um, I don't think we're, we're going to be curing this disease. But the other important thing about old age is one's innate immune system becomes more dysregulated, and uh, you become not only old and grumpy like Chris, but more inflamed. So you become more inflammatory. Other inflammatory things, smoking, of course, is not only biologically inflammatory, but also politically inflammatory. Atherosclerosis, diabetes, obesity, and periodontitis. 
All of these are inflammatory, systemic inflammatory events, all of which have the capacity to communicate with the brain along, I would suggest to you, uh, the pathways uh, that I described earlier in our animal models. And we think that uh, the treatment with uh, a Tanacept, the peripheral treatment, uh, where the, the, the treatment does not have to cross the blood-brain barrier per se, uh, is uh, potentially a way to go. So let me just capture a, a few of what I think are the, the key points of the last 45 minutes or so. So in chronic neurodegenerative disease, the microglia proliferate, and this proliferation is associated with this prime state. They, they become uh, potentially more reactive to a secondary stimulus. And the molecules that we know are certainly key in this process are CSF1 and IL-34, acting through the CSF1 receptor. And we know quite a lot about the downstream cascade, signaling cascade, uh, associated with this molecule. Perhaps surprisingly, even the microglia with the primed phenotype uh, appear to contribute to the disease progression. And of course, we're trying to find out what are the molecules uh, that might be secreted by these cells. Uh, that contribute to that process. I've told you that the systemic inflammation, uh, as we've shown with, with LPS uh, and poly-IC, but now with real infections, can switch the microglia phenotype and can further contribute to disease progression or disease symptoms. And so uh, this suggests, uh, of course, lots of potential around uh, treating systemically. I think a really interesting idea here is that the microglia play a homeostatic role in immune-to-brain communication. And, and this idea that the immune system communicates with the brain all the time, I think is important. I think it's a much neglected part of medicine. Um, and indeed, sickness itself is something that we need to know uh, a lot more about. A particular interest, of course, in the diseased brain is in, in the wild, there are very few animal species that ever live long enough uh, to get a diseased central nervous system. So we are the first animals that live uh, long enough and in large enough numbers that you have a diseased central nervous system. And now this immune to brain communication may be maladaptive rather than homeostatic. And I think this is a, a, an interesting idea. Uh, I think that two take home messages from the point of, of the therapeutic interventions is that modifying the proliferation and priming offers one routine uh, to uh, changing the way the disease might progress. Uh, I think the other interesting idea is that simply monitoring and prompt treatment of systemic disease itself offers a route uh, to delaying disease progression and even if nothing else, uh, certainly improving the quality of life uh, of people with these uh, diseases. Um, Finally, let me say, of course, most of this was not done by me, it was done by people. I mentioned the, the key players as we went along, but others also involved. Uh, particularly good fun working with Clive uh, and his colleagues. And uh, we're grateful to our funders, and, and thank you for your attention. Thank you.